Good afternoon. myself. Yes, yeah, see, she talks when I start. This is what she does. Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of our unnamed podcast. Yet we're trying. Miami Martin Martin can help us. We're trying to collaborate together and come up with a name for this uh, podcast show, where we bring fruition and those that need to be held accountable to the fr- forefront. So everybody knows I'm Dr. Victoria Curie. I have Whitney Lee with me, who is amazing, and I adore her with the Imposter Syndrome podcast. And then I have somebody who started with me way back in the day, Martin. I'm so excited he's back. I haven't had him on a show in forever. He has the most amazing story I was telling Whitney before we, we started recording about the triumph and inspiration that Martin brings just talking to him just knowing him, knowing what he's been through. And it, it is such an honor to have both of you, even though Whitney hosts with me, but it's always an honor. So I want to thank Martin for being here. And I'm going to let Whitney uh, poke and prod you a little bit to uh, get a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, I was sure. laughing because it was like, even though Whitney's just a normal person. <laughs> I never, <laughs> never say that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Martin, for joining us. Um, So I, like Victoria said, am just getting like caught up to speed as to who you are and what you're about. I wonder if you can share with us just the the cliff notes of um, what, who are you? What, what drives you? Who am I? Uh, I think I'm still uh, (laughs) in the middle of figuring that out. Um, It's been quite the journey. So um, I am currently, I guess, you know, we start with our, our job titles, even though we're, you know, we're, we're so much more than that. But I am the director of cultural engagement at Lines for Life, which is an organization based out of Portland, Oregon, that is dedicated to reducing, um, uh, you know, stigma around mental health and getting people connected with um, those resources as well as substance use resources. So in a nutshell, we take all the uh, crisis lines for 988 in the state of Oregon, as well as we have a military helpline for struggling veterans. We have a youth line um, for youth who can get connected with peers. Um, we have a senior loneliness line. We have a racial equity support line. So essentially, we have um, you know a, a, a hodgepodge, if you will, of crisis lines to try to meet um, the needs of the community as diverse as they are. And so I lead a small team into the community to specifically talk to black, brown, and indigenous people about mental health and how it looks different for us, quite frankly, and how the resources and support um, should likewise uh, be different and feel different. Um, So we do that. And in my private life, I speak publicly um, at uh, high schools, colleges, conferences um, about DUI prevention, because there's a whole story there um, around a DUI that costs me uh, 17 and a half years in prison. Um, so we can talk about that more if you guys want to delve into that. Martin, I was telling Whitney uh, before you joined us that there was that pivotal moment when this happened that really changed you. And I was telling her just what an amazing person you are during the entire thing. I mean, you know, there's a difference between somebody who goes out there with premeditation and malicious and go out there and, and and hurt somebody or, or take a life. But you were so concerned about the other people involved and you were more concerned about them than you. And 
the way that you handled the entire situation and the incarceration, what was that pivotal moment? I know you've shared it with me, but I, I really want Whitney to hear it too, where you, it was just that moment for you where it was just so real. Sure. So um, just to kind of give a little context. So it was a, a, a fatal crash that I caused on New Year's Eve of 2003 in Portland. I've been I was heavy into my addiction at that point at 24 years old. I've been drinking since I was 14, dealing with, dealing with a lot of internal struggles about my identity and self-concept and just, you know, the whole thing. And so it culminated with a, a fatal crash that claimed the lives of two people and severely injured a third person. Uh, this was in Portland, Oregon. And it was like three or four days later, I'm in my cell, minding my own business. And someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper underneath my cell door, and I couldn't understand why I didn't ask anybody to see a paper. So I pick it up. I begin to thumb through this paper, and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And I began to read each paragraph that morning, and the lives of my victims began to unfold in these paragraphs. And what I learned that morning was that these were two people who were in recovery. They had like 16 and 17 years in recovery, respectively. They were advocates in the community to help people get connected to substance use resources. They would volunteer to watch women's children so that these ladies could attend AA and NA meetings, right? They were heavily, heavily involved in the recovery community in Portland. And the night that this happened, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the Oregon Convention Center when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the columnist had, had you know, um, he talked about the, uh, he called it a palpable irony that these people who had devoted their lives to help people get clean and sober would have their lives cut short by a drunk driver. And then he said something at the, at the end of the article, changed my life forever. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. And it was such a heavy, profound statement, right? I'm 24 years old, and I know based on the mandatory minimum sentencing laws in Oregon, I know that I'm going to prison for about 20 years day for day. We can't earn a single day off for good behavior, for working a job, getting an education. None of that matters. So I know I'm going to be a middle-aged man by the time I get out. So it was hard to to fully wrap my head around what he had just said and how this situation is possibly going to help me. But I also knew what he said could not be ignored, right? I had to figure out what those words were supposed to mean for my life. And so I remember for the next five or six months, I mean, I prayed about it. Like that's, I mean, that's all I knew how to do at that point. I, I literally meditated on that phrase hearing it multiple times a day in my head. And, you know, and then it finally came to me that, um, you know, the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies. And if I literally make that my life's mission, my life's purpose, my life's leading cause, and just throw myself into this, into this work. And I didn't know, I didn't know how that would manifest. I didn't know what opportunities would avail themselves um, throughout my incarceration. I didn't even know how long I was going to be in prison. I knew it was going to be a long time. I didn't know how long. I just knew I was committed in that moment. And so I kind of trusted, if you will. Um, uh, you know, I trusted God. I mean, you know, people people have their, their, their 
their ways of viewing that. But I trusted God to kind of guide my steps and lead and 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 lead the way. And that's what happened. Um, you know, there's a whole story of when I got in, in, in into prison and and what I did for things to unfold for me or for, you know, for God to kind of allow things to unfold for me the way they did. But that was the pivotal moment, reading that newspaper in that cell a few days into this tragedy and um, and really starting to get some clarity around what was what was supposed to transpire over the next 17 and a half years. Wow, I um, that means a lot. So I I'm also well, I'm somebody who's in long term recovery. And so I've known people, of course, who have died um, behind our addiction. I also know people who have been killed, you know, behind someone else's addiction. And um, that I, I think it's it's like tragically poetic um, is, I think, you know, a bit about what what that reporter was was talking about and um as Victoria and I have been having these conversations with others, you know, the the theme that is emerging is this um, reality of where we as humans run into a roadblock, how we are able to um, lift ourselves back up and create change, meaningful change through the perspective that we now have because of our experiences. So in our last conversation with Marla Thomas, it was about um, dealing with mental illness in, in her family and, and dealing with all of the barriers that were in place to be able to find um, good mental health care and safe mental health care um, for her loved ones. And, you know, now she's her and her husband have started a foundation um, and are going to be building step down units in California for uh, people who are being released from psychiatric centers to be able to live in. And I hear you talking about this story of, um, you know, you said you were in the throes of your addiction and and having, you know, murdered these these people whose lives at this point were dedicated to their sobriety and to helping spread the message to others. Um, and it's just really inspiring to, to hear stories where people like some shit has happened, you know, like this is not fair type of shit, not fair, not okay, painful, traumatic. Um, and yet through this, there are lessons that we can take. There are, um, passions that can grow within us to create something else, something, you know, beautiful, something meaningful, something impactful to other people. And so now I'm thinking about, you know, that reporter said, maybe you're the one that that's being helped the most by these people. And now I'm thinking about all of the people that you're working with, um, who you're now helping, because you've now made this tragedy um, the story to inspire your your life's mission. So um, I wonder if you can talk about like what, I don't know, what what your role is in the recovery community, because I see that you've got your um, substance abuse counselor certification. Um, and you talked about being, you know, committed to to this message and speaking to people about DUI and stuff like that. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, so um, 
So when I was inside, I had about six or seven years left, and they had started a DUI victim impact panel within the prison where they would bring in people from the community who had lost loved ones to a DUI driver. And they would sit in a room with about 50 inmates in a circle. And well, now they call them adults in custody. I guess I should use that terminology as opposed to inmates. So 50 AICs, adults in custody, sitting in a circle. And um, this person would tell this tragic story of how they had lost a daughter or a son or a husband or a wife to a DUI driver and the difficulty of going through the trial process and never getting an apology from the person who had done this, right? Just this, just this gut-wrenching um, uh, uh, process they had gone through. And then we would, one of us on the inside who had perpetrated this crime would tell our story of, of you know, obviously having full remorse and accountability and contrition and all those things. And it was just such a healing space that we were in with these folks. Um, there were tears, there were hugs, and it, it, it was so cathartic to be a part of that. And so I knew when I when I embarked on that, I knew that once I got out, I was going to to speak at DUI victim impact panels and 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 things like that. I had no idea that I would. Um, so a couple years later, still incarcerated, I recorded my story um, to put on YouTube just to have my story out there. Maybe it might help one or two people, or ten or twelve. The pandemic happens and everybody's searching for online content for the DUI victim impact panels. And the numbers just skyrocketed on that video. And um, and even today, I get messages from people in Georgia, Arkansas, Texas, California. I go to conferences, New York, Pennsylvania, Oregon, everybody, not everybody, but there's always at least one person that comes up to me and says, I show you a video at my panel, you know, every month. And like the the, the response that we get is so is so powerful. And like that, so that that tells me I had one uh, uh, intention in mind, which was just to put it out there and just maybe it'll help a few people. Had no idea a pandemic was going to happen, that people would need online content, that this thing would reach, you know, tens of thousands, if not more, um, you know, uh, people, right? But that's where my spirituality comes into place. It's like, I feel like God knew exactly what, you know, what he was doing um, with that process. So to say, to ask what I do today. Um, so for the last two years, I've been out since June of, of 21. So it's been about two and a half years. Um, the first two plus years, I worked on the drug and alcohol helpline at Lines for Life. And I would take calls. So in Oregon, when you are cited with a small amount of drugs, you don't go to jail anymore. You get a citation. And then the judge tells you to call somebody like me or one of my colleagues to do a screening on the phone with you. And then at the end of that call, we're gonna to talk to you about resources and getting connected. Um, and then we give you a certificate, you go to court, you get the $100 fine waived and you go about your business. But that is kind of um, that uh, first line of defense, if you will, to be able to connect with people who need help, right? And their incentive is to call and get the $100 fine dropped. But our motivation is to get these people connected to treatment where they live. And so I did that for a couple of years. Um, I speak remotely at DUI Victim Impact. I have one tonight for that matter with the hospital that treated the one guy who survived my crash almost 20 years ago. Um, they do a DUI Victim Impact panel with first time DUI offenders every month. I do that twice a month, actually. I speak at alcohol highway safety classes here in Pennsylvania. Um, I speak at high schools. Uh, I speak at conferences. I went on the Save a Life tour 
in New York where they go to high schools and colleges, they bring these big simulators so kids can get inside, put on virtual reality goggles and feel what it feels like to drive impaired or to drive while texting. And then I tell my story there. Um, and I speak at conferences. I speak at, I was just at a law enforcement conference uh, in Harrisburg. And I did one in New York last month. I've done a few of those uh, DUI task enforcement uh, conferences, um, as well as the Pennsylvania uh, Drug Treatment Court Professionals uh, Conference. And I've done, I've done a couple others. And so basically um, I speak, depending on the audience, the message is gonna vary somewhat, whether you're somebody who's gotten a DUI or you're the person who is treating the person who's gotten a DUI. Um, I try to use my story as, as a way to impact that work. And um, and then I, I, I go to AA, right? I'm a, I'm a uh, huge proponent of AA. Uh, those are my people. I tell people all the time that, you know, you have family, you have friends, and they're great for support. But if they don't understand addiction and what that looks like and how that manifests, you cannot go to them when you are struggling with cravings or, you know, your addictive brain wants to try to ramp up and tell you some things that are clearly not true, right? You need to go to your people. You have to be in those rooms with people who understand what that feels like and what that looks like so that they can give you the support that you need to get through that. So, um, I mean, there's there's more there, but I, I think I've, I've given you a mouthful or an earful. <laughs> <laughs> How were you treated while you were incarcerated? How were you treated by the uh, correctional officers? So I will say this, for me personally, I mean, of course, you're always feeling dehumanized, right? When you're referred to as a number more often than your name, you are feeling dehumanized, right? Or your cell number, right? I'm 46B, I'm not Martin Lockett, right? Or I'm inmate Lockett, right? I'm, you're always reminded that you are different than, than you know everybody outside of these walls. And I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if that's just the nature of being in an institution. I mean, I, I you know, I have my beliefs about the intentionality behind it. Um, but whatever the case, you are made to feel dehumanized. And so, but I will say for 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 me personally, I wasn't, you know, like the officers saw how I conducted myself. They saw I was consistent in the way I did my time. I never got in trouble. I never, you know, joined a gang. You know, I stayed out of the way. I worked as an educational tutor. I did my college courses. Like they saw who I was. And so they more or less, you know, kind of left me alone. But the guys who were, you know, going a different path, oh, those those officers were, they were brutal. I mean, they were absolutely brutal. And I felt sorry for guys, um, but I also felt helpless because like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like yeah. they have all the authority, they have all the power, but it is just so dehumanizing, just the whole existence of being in a facility. Um, and so I'll tell you for me, I, I, I push back against it psychologically for myself. So for instance, so many guys, um, because they're there for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, they want to normalize um, that setting. So for instance, instead of saying, I'm going to go to canteen, they say, I'm going to go to the store. Instead of I'm going to, to medical, oh, I'm, I'm going to the hospital, right? Instead of I'm going to my cell, I'm, I'm, I'm going to my house. And I'm like, I'm never going to refer to any of these things as my house, the hospital, the store. I don't want it to feel normal because it's not normal, right? And so I refuse to kind of condition myself 
to making prison feel normal, right? I mean, yeah, you have to comply. You have to kind of lay or understand the lay of the land. But psychologically, like, I rebelled right. <laughs> fiercely, yeah. you know? And I think it, it kept me, it kept me um, kind of forward thinking. It kept my mind not incarcerated, my mentality free. Um, and so that's, that's pretty much how I got, got through that 17 and a half years. What well, is, and you, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say uh, on that point, you mentioned when we started it out, um, changing the terminology from inmate to adult in custody. And that's something that um, we do in, in my work as well is we don't refer to people by saying inmate or saying prisoner or saying the words that um, the state has given somebody, um, but instead calling people, you know, individuals who are incarcerated or incarcerated individual or incarcerated person or person that's currently in a jail or prison. Um, because, you know, my belief, and now I am on really one far side of this debate around prison prisons and, and jail psychology and all of that stuff. But like, the purpose of this system is to break you down and to to let you know that you are no longer a person. You lost your humanity, your personhood at the point where you entered those doors, where the the gate locked behind you. And so my belief is the the calling the person by the number, calling the person by um, inmates is all to make you take on the subservient nature of slavery. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's interesting to hear you talk about normalizing that um, the condition of being in prison, um, because that is something that that as an advocate, I hear a lot. Um, I hear that language a lot. I hear I'm going to the store a lot. And in my mind, as somebody that's never been in prison, never been incarcerated, never had to go to um, the store, if you will, you know, I'm like, but so are you leaving? Like, what do you mean you're going to the store? Um, and when in reality, you know, what's happening is they're picking stuff off a menu and it's being delivered to their cell. You know, people calling their cell their rooms. And I think as an advocate, it's it's an interesting and sometimes difficult uh, linguistic line to to walk because I want to value you and your experience and the language that you want to use. Like, who am I to say that this ain't a store? You know, whatever you want to call it. I want to, you know, I don't need to call it commissary. I can call it store if you want to call it store, you know? Um, so I, I do think that's really an interesting um, perspective. And and one of the people that, that I worked with for a long time talked about the institutionalization of people who are incarcerated and how um, for him, keeping his name was really important, keeping his name intact, responding to his name. And for me, it was really important to call him formally, to call him Mr. Such and Such instead of even a first name, um, recognizing that so often people who are in this position are never referred to in a respectful manner ever um and let let me be the only person then this week or this month or this year to call this person in a way that that honors them and their dignity um so victoria you were going to ask martin something yeah i get asked all the time but i would love to hear it from from you 
as you know, you know, my husband and I have that law enforcement background as well. And we see things totally different um, than a lot of officers. There's great officers out there and there's some really crappy ass officers out there. And I'll be the first to say that. But did you see, and I I wanted to hear it from your point of view, did you see how like inmates treated other inmates different? So if you were in there, say for a DUI, you were treated one way. If you were in there for child molestation, you were treated a different way. If you were a pedophile, obviously you were treated a different way. Is that something that as, as someone who was incarcerated, is, is that fair to say? I mean, how was the different um, charges and, incar- you know, the person, how how are they treated differently once they were incarcerated? 1,000%, Victoria. Um, there is definitely kind of a, a stratification, a social stratification uh, system in place, uh, depending on your charges, right? Which is, I mean, when you think about it, like to think a guy who committed murder is at the top of that, that, that chain, right? But think about that. This guy took a parent from their child, a brother from his mother. And right. I mean, just think about that. And he celebrated. Right. Like a cop killer, a cop killer celebrated in in jail. Exactly. But, 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 but people they don't they don't go that far to look at it they're just like oh yeah he you know he's he's a tough guy he took somebody's life but it's like but but look at the ripple effect of that now his kids now this person's kids have to grow up without their parent right the trauma that that family is 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 suffering so yes there is based on what you did there's there's a hierarchy and obviously if you have anything sex related whether it's is 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 sexual assault against a fully grown adult or or touching a kid, like you are gonna have a hard time. You are gonna you are gonna I, they get extorted. Like you go to you you go to a job and you're making forty to fifty dollars a month, right? And that's a decent job. Um, I was at the top pay, seventy eight bucks a month. So you know I was you know living like the Cosby's, if you will. But um, but those guys who make thirty and forty dollars, like. They have to go to the commissary and and at least give half of that to the extorters, which were the gang members. Right, the gang members run the yard. Right, they run the yard. They 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 dictate um, uh, what group is going to sit at this table outside. What group is going to sit at this table? Like in the chow hall, it's all segregated. It's all segregated, and and the child molesters and and pedo- and, and and sexual offenders like. <laughs> There, I mean, I, 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 it's not funny because I just think human beings across the board should be treated like human beings. But, um, but it is tough. Like it is so tough. Or if, if, if you know, um, you told on somebody who's who's you know a, a gang member, right? Then that whole gang is after you. The whole I've seen guys get transferred from prison to prison to prison because no matter where they went, somebody was after them. So then they have to eventually put them in in administrative segregation. So it's like you're so like you're in the hole or segregation, even though you didn't do anything wrong. But like for your own protection, like we have to keep you safe because we're liable if somebody kills you on the yard. Um, so it is it is a tough deal. And, I, and I'll finish by saying this: there were even some correctional officers because they obviously can that. they can see all the charges of, mm-hmm. of, of of people who are incarcerated. And I promise you, I've seen it. I I, I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see it myself. 
And they would, they because they have a little, um, like a little office behind the officer station where they go and have a computer. And they would call some inmates back there and show these inmates these a person's charges, right? And then now everybody knows this person's charges, and that guy is getting beat up on the yard the next day. Like an officer was behind that, and, and so they, they, they turn around and look at a blind eye if it's well, yes. pending. Right, but I mean, but they're the ones who conspired the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. And so it, yeah, it's just, it's a bad, bad time for people with those types of charges. Do you think that they can be reformed? A pedophile can get reformed while incarcerated? I think if there is the proper treatment, but the thing is, you have to think about why there's no, there's, and there's even, um, uh, I don't want to say controversy, but there's, um, so there's a difference of opinions as to whether or not there's any um, uh, effective treatment for these folks. I know they, they, they've had some programs um, over the years um, about accountability and empathy building and things like that to understand the hurt that they cause these victims, right? Um, but, but imagine trying to have a program like that in prison because everybody would know, anybody who walks through that door for that program, oh, we know why you're here. So how would you even implement something like that in an institutional setting? Yeah, I um so I'm in Georgia. Georgia prisons are exactly what you think they would be. Um deadly. Just deadly. Georgia jails even are deadly. And um one of the things that you know, to your point of what we would hear about often was just COs yelling at the top of their lungs, you know, what somebody's charges are or that somebody's attorney was calling to talk about X, Y, Z um, so that everybody, you know, on the floor can hear, you know, this person's business. And I've had people who asked me not to mail them stuff because they're concerned that I'm going to put in my mail something having to do with their charges. And um, mail isn't secure in, in jails and prisons. Um, so I wonder, you know, I'm just thinking about your impact, your impact that you have, that you're having on people that you're, you're talking to. Um, have you, do you have any experiences of working with people, sharing your your story with people, and then those people coming back and saying, hey, Martin, like, you changed my life. Like, this is, this is the road that I was down, and this is what I'm doing now, and, like, thank you. Do you have any stories like that that you can share with us? Um, yeah, it's funny. It's funny that, you know, where those stories have existed um, have been through Instagram, so since I've been out, so there's a there, there's a page on Instagram, there's a whole recovery community on Instagram, and there's a page on there um, that is called A Life Recovered. And um, it's an awesome, awesome page where the guy will, um, he will solicit stories from people um, to talk about their addiction and now their recovery, whether they have one day in recovery or 10 years or 20 years. And it's always a before and after picture side by side, right? To really give you that that snapshot of a life that has been recovered. And um, and so he, when I first shared my story on his page about a year and a few months ago, 
then um, he would have people reach out to him and would say, hey, you know, I'm struggling. I'm, you know, in the midst of my addiction or, or alcoholism. I need some help. So he asked me if it would be okay if he if he could refer some people uh, to me. And I was like, sure, like this is this is the work that I'm doing. H- however, that connection needs to be made. So I remember there was, there was one um, person in particular it really stood out to me. This person, um, a young, a young lady, early twenties, uh, highly addicted to opioids, had been doing them for like ten or eleven years. Um, you know, just just emaciated. Um, you know, not working, not going to school. Just, I mean, just literally withering away and dying. Right, but 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 she wanted help, and so um, we had a few phone calls. I gave her some 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 local resources, but mainly like she just got comfort in having somebody to talk to. You know what I mean? Just having somebody to talk to if she was having a bad day. So she got she went to a detox program that I referred her to, um, got clean off the opioids, connected her with a psychiatrist to be able to give her some medication for her mental health because that was that's what was underlying it all. Um, she got a job got a job um, and has been working that job now for about three months, I want to say. Um, she was homeless. She now has an apartment and uh, like her whole life. And so now we're talking about her, like t- thinking about her future and get, going to school and things like that. And, um, you know, she still has some, some tough days, but she has not relapsed. She's come close, but she has not relapsed. And I told her like, even if, even if a relapse did happen, God forbid, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. We would need to assess what was going on in your life that led to that relapse so that we can kind of shore up that, you know, shore that up in a, in a stronger prevention, relapse prevention plan, right? Um, she goes to, she goes to NA. So it's just, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And like to even see pictures of her when she was in her addiction to now see her, like it's just, so, she's so vibrant and just lively and just like looks happy to be alive. You know what I mean? And so, and I mean, that happened through Instagram. And so, you know, it's just, you reach people where they are and and, and you try to, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, underlying a lot of our struggles is like just a lack of, of, of human connection, like good human support, right? Like you cannot have too many people in your support system. If this is a, these are solid people that care about you, just to know that you're not alone going through whatever you're going through. And we all go through stuff. As long as we have that community kind of holding us up and embracing us and, um, you know, giving us that comfort, you know, that's how we make it through. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, recovery and isolation, you know, for me, is just white knuckle in it. I mean, that's, that's not that's not sobriety for me and i think um you know i'm i'm a 12 stepper that's that's the method that i use but i know that there are others out there and i think to your point the the value is in community is in recovering with other people and um talking about what our experiences are because you know for for folks that are listening who are maybe struggling with addiction it's hard. <laughs> like life is hard, it turns out. Um, and, you know, a lot of us when we build these maladaptive ways of coping, um, I think the expectation is that 
once we stop using or we stop drinking or we stop doing whatever behavior that we're doing, that life will be easy. And unfortunately, life is just hard. People still die. We still get fired from jobs. We still got attitude problems. We still got kids that hate us, you know, and it's, but when you're recovering in community, then you have other people who can share with you how they made it through. Um, and I think Victoria's a contagious smile and the, the, the support that she provides to people who are, um, you know, recovering from physical abuse, from the trauma, from um, disability and, and living, learning how to live this life with their trauma, I think is so valuable because of the community part, because, you know, Victoria has experienced it, has been through the things, has, has been through the legal issues, has been through the, the family, you know, all of that. And I just think it is, you know, also for folks that are listening, if whatever the situation is that you're experiencing, find someone you know, who you can talk to about what you're experiencing, because you're not the only one, like, you're just not, you're not, what do we we say in AA, like, we're not terminally unique, like it, you're not that, that special. <laughs> like we all have, we're all going through it. This is actually just life. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, like, it's actually just life. And, um, you know, there are many of us who, who survive this. Um, and I, I love hearing your story, Martin, because you're thriving despite, you know, decisions that that you made, despite addiction or alcoholism or whatever it is. Um, and I think that I hope that that gives that gives folks hope. Well, and I, and I appreciate that. I want to go back to something you said earlier when you were saying that, like, there's always um, these obstacles or barriers or, or you know, um, kind of roadblocks that we hit. And it's like a, um, it's a pivotal moment, right? Um, where it kind of, you know, launches us into this whole, maybe a whole new direction in life, but it's, it's, it's purpose-filled and it's, 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 it's very, you know, mission-driven. And it's because we went through that tragedy or pain or trauma that kind of, um, you know, led us to do the work that we do. And I think, I think, frankly, I think, I don't think we just go through terrible circumstances just because I feel like there's always an underlying purpose and reason and something to extract from that that is supposed to, um, you know, I don't know, I don't, know, I don't know if it's give us an epiphany, but it's, 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 we're supposed to be changed by that, right? There's always a purpose and a reason. But now, some some things we just go through, and this is, we just go through it because we do. But I think a lot of things, um, especially like the, the major moments of adversity, I feel like there are invaluable life lessons that are to be extracted from that. And those are supposed to be pivotal points in our lives uh, where we're supposed to take some guidance and direction from. And, um, you know, so I think it's important to remind people that I always tell that even when I'm, I, I counsel people one on one as well, privately, it's another one of my private ventures. Um, but you know, it's more important um, the why. The why is more important than the what, right? What I'm going through, yeah, it, it sucks and it's terrible, but it's more important for me to figure out the why, right? Because that way, so like if I had looked at my 17 and a half years in prison as, as, as what I'm going through, then it would have been doom and gloom every single day. I would have been, you know, 
looking at calendars and just like just getting depressed because like my release date is 2021 and here it is 2004. Like how how does that bring me anything of comfort? So I stayed fixated on the why. And 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 so once I figured out the why and and I allowed that to kind of guide my steps, like then I just I stayed my head I stayed with my head down and I was mission focused. Right. And and like I learned that's when I learned about the origins of my addiction and criminality and start to peel back the layers of, 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 of my addiction and criminality and kind of got to the origin of where it all started for me and why I felt how I did at 13, 14, 15 years old. It drove me into, you know, doing things I wouldn't normally do, wasn't raised to do. Nobody in my family, you know, was an alcoholic but me. Um, you know, nobody struggled as far as I know with their identity issues as much as I did. And so once I was able to kind of ascertain, um, you know, why everything went the way that it did for me, then I was able to pour that into other young guys coming into the system, uh, leading them away from the prison gangs and the prison politics and all that nonsense and kind of just have some real moments with those. That led to me having conversations with young guys on the yard about childhood trauma, about being molested, stuff you don't talk about in prison, like at all, but they felt comfortable with me. They yeah. felt safe with me because they saw the work that I was doing and they saw I was different than a lot of guys there. And this is not to disparage anybody and people get through prison how they need to, how they feel they need to, right? But I knew going in that that, that, that I was not going to be doing my time that way. And so I'm grateful for those moments. I'm grateful I still keep in contact with some of those young guys today that I was in prison with 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Um and so it's, uh, again, it, you know, none of that was by accident, if you ask me. Absolutely. I, I want to thank Whitney for her sweet words. They mean so much to me. They really, really do. But Martin, when you when you speak, the the sincerity is so authentic. It feels, and I know that everybody's going to say, oh my God, Victoria's just a cheesehead. But you're like, you are, it's like, I know she's laughing at me. It is, it's like a verbal hug. It really is because it's soft and it's genuine and it's full of care. And it literally, when he talks about his compassion, it, it's like just the sweetest, softest verbal hug that I know so many people, they need. And you offer that. And I, I've had the honor of knowing him for a couple of years now. And he has stayed who he is. He has not changed at all in any way. And I want him to be on with us more than every couple of years, just saying. Um, but I know you have to go and you have a meeting in a couple of minutes and I literally threw you into this today. Tell everybody where they can find you and your three books that are out. I've read two of them and they are amazing and everybody should go out and, and purchase them, but how everybody uh, can find you. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for saying that, um, Victoria. Um, you guys are doing awesome work. You have been uh, steadfast in this work and 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 helping uh, people who need it the most, people who suffer from trauma, people who um, have been down and out, people who have felt that there's there's nobody out there for them, and you all have, have reached those folks. So it was an honor to be on with you guys today. Um, I guess the easiest the easiest way to I'm only on one social media platform, which is Instagram, uh, Martin L Lockett, um, and then my website is martinlockett.com. And um, that would be probably the easiest way to, to reach out via email or, um, yeah. 
and all of his books are on Amazon. He's he's not mentioning that, but they are really, really great reads. I, like I said, everybody should go out and read them. When I got my copies, I couldn't put them down and I don't have time to read. I work like a crazy person, but they're just, it's really his insight as to how things are, are really eye-opening. Um, even for me with the background that I have, it, it's, it's a lot of things people don't have a clue about and really does need to come to the forefront because things need to change, definitely need to change. And I want to thank Martin and I'm going to let Whitney uh, close us out. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I, I think this is I, really impactful for me. Um, and I'm sure for others as well. Um, yeah. I <laughs> I'm at a loss for words, frankly. That doesn't happen um, often. Whatever. Um, <laughs> anyways, Victoria and I are going to be doing um these types of conversations on a weekly basis for the foreseeable future. Uh, we still don't have a name yet, but I think we're themes are emerging, as I said at the at the outset. And so, if you have an um, idea of a name, Martin? Let us know. We're trying to figure that out. Yeah. The more the more I think about it, Victoria, the Phoenix situation logo or like a animal that can be our spirit animals, the Phoenix. That's what I suggested. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm but you know what? Saying. You need to be validated. I'm just saying. <laughs> so on that note, you can catch Victoria and I on our separate podcast. My podcast is Impostrix Podcast, Validating Professionals of Color who navigate imposter syndrome and racial toxicity. And Victoria is at A Contagious Smile podcast, which is what you're listening to now. Unnamed right? off of the platform of A Contagious Smile. Yeah, I mean, but this is where they're listening to it. Well, I don't care where they listen to it as long as it helps them and they listen. Yeah. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, Thank you. you.